I'm not really a details person. I did it again uh, on Friday. I came home from the dollar store after buying uh, a cord to charge my phone. And uh, I, I, I was really intentional because I made the mistake before that the part that plugged into my phone uh, was not the right kind of a part. And the USB part was, was right that went into my computer, but the part that went into my phone, I got it home before and did that, and then I did it again where I had the right little, I don't even know what these things are called because I'm not a detail person. The thing that was supposed to plug into my phone was the right end, but the end that was supposed to plug into my computer wasn't the right. Now, some of you have never done that. I do that sort of stuff all the time, uh, which makes me frustrating to live with, frustrating to work with. I am not a detail uh, person. Uh, One time, uh, our family decided really last minute, kind of on 24 hours notice, to take a trip to Florida, to drive to Florida. And uh, I had never been to Florida. I had just assumed that once you got south of Buffalo, it was just all sunshine. And so when we were packing, I just told the kids, with shorts and bathing suits and beach towels and and we'll be fine. And so we didn't even bring jackets with us. Uh, As we we left, it was was sort of New Year's Eve that we got in the car. And then we're driving through a snowstorm in the mountains of West Virginia. And I I can see the headline, Canadian family freezes to death in a ditch with with no winter clothing. I am not a detail person. Sometimes I make commitments where I think, well, I can, I can be here and do this. And oh, what, you're, all, you're also inviting me to, to be there and to do that? And I don't think through the details of the time it's going to take to get from one place to the other or how much energy I'm going to spend doing the one thing versus the other thing. Sometimes I can make promises or commitments and not think through the details. All of us have had an experience where we've really got behind uh, a political leader who had some great ideas, who made some great promises, and but then when that leader and their administration try to get into the details, they're not able to, they're not able to follow through. God is not like a politician. God is not like Ted Duncan. God is detail-oriented. And God is simultaneously all about the big picture and about vision and purpose and thinking long term. And yet he cares about the small details as well. And that's what our passage is about today. We, we, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 21, where we left off the last time, this was sort of a, this high point. The long-awaited son, Isaac, has been born. They're living in the promised land. It seems as though those great promises that God had made are being fulfilled. But there's some, there's some other details that clearly Abraham and Sarah hadn't thought about. But there's some other details that that God had thought about. And and God shows himself in this story to be faithful, to diligently deal with every detail related to his promises. God is faithful to diligently deal with every single detail as it relates to his promises. Verses 8 to 21 that Munir read for us deal with the story of Ishmael and Hagar and the details related to, uh, to their relationship with Abraham and Sarah and with Isaac. 
And then verses 22 to 34 talk about Abimelech and how Abraham and Sarah are going to relate to their neighbors in terms of geography, in terms of economics, and in terms of of politics. What ties these two stories together is that they both happen in, in the same location called Beersheba. And they both have wells in the story. And the well is really the most important part in, in, in the setting of, of these stories. And ultimately, what we see here is, you know, God made this initial promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Go from your country and your kindred to the, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. This sort of threefold promise of land and offspring and blessing, we see the specific details of related to these promises being diligently dealt with by our God. And so our, our message today is going to come at us in two parts because uh, the, the first story is going to refer to the promised offspring and then the promised uh, land. And so let me, let me pray as we uh, dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help right now. We thank you that you are a faithful God and that you cross every T and dot every I, Lord, and that all of the, all of the numbers in your spreadsheet all add up. Thank you that every detail is taken into consideration and dealt with. Thank you that nothing surprises you. God, thank you that you are faithful to fulfill not just your promises generally, but you fulfill them specifically down to the minute details. And God, I pray that you would help us as we open your word, as we study these somewhat obscure stories. Uh, God, we pray that you would reveal to us who you are and show us how we ought to relate to you as such a faithful and good God. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're starting with the, with the promised offspring. And uh, the, the takeaway here, what we can draw from this story is, is the truth of what it means to trust God with a painful and complicated family situation. Abraham and Sarah found themselves in a very painful uh, relationship with uh, Ishmael and Hagar. This is a heartbreaking story on, on multiple levels. And it's complicated they had really made a mess of things, but the, the mess involved human people with, with souls and with feelings, and it, it, it's not just quite as cut and dry as you might want it to be. There's mistrust, and there's love, there's disappointment and deception, but there's also a, a, a desire to, to keep this thing going. So in verse 8 it says, and, and the child grew and was weaned. This follows verse 7 where they're celebrating that Isaac has been, has been born. The child grew, this is Isaac, and he was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So Isaac is probably two to three years old at this point. He's no longer dependent on his mother for a nourishment. And Abraham has a giant feast with with. With, with adult food that, that Isaac is uh, he's able to sit at this feast and enjoy all of this food and this 
feast was a big deal at that time because infant mortality was so much higher then that, that if your infant progresses into the toddler stage or the little boy stage or the little girl stage, that was something to be celebrated because, because this, the child is growing, this child is healthy, and so they have this giant party to celebrate that, that, uh, that Isaac was, was weaned. We have parties uh, when, you know, at every year after a child is, is born. In their culture, this moment is, is, a key, is a key moment uh, for their family. Verse 9 says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now remember, the name Isaac means laughter. Remember when Abraham first heard the promise that Sarah was going to give birth to a son, that Abraham laughed in Genesis 17. And then when Sarah was eavesdropping on the tent, in the tent, when, when, when the angels came to visit Abraham and they retold the story, Sarah started laughing. And then God got the last laugh when Isaac was born and he was named laughter. And then look, at, at, look back at verse 7 of chapter 21. Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old Age And look back at verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now verse 9 says that, uh, that Ishmael, although he's not named, he's never named in this story. He's referred to multiple times, but he's never named. It says that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, was laughing now, you might read that and think, oh, he's just joining in. He's celebrating. Like Sarah was inviting people to celebrate and they're having this feast. He's, he's laughing. But look at Sarah's reaction to the laughter. Verse 10, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So when we study God's word, we want to pay attention to context. We've heard the word laughter multiple times so far, and we assume that this, this kind of laughter is a good thing. But Sarah's reaction shows us that, that this laughter can't be a good thing. So we're studying the context. We're trying to make sense of this. Now, when the immediate context when we're studying God's word doesn't make sense, we, we need to broaden the scope of the context where we're looking. So we need to look, let's look, where, where else is this word used in the, book of, in the book of Genesis? Well, when Potiphar's wife tried to accuse Joseph of, of coming on to her, she said in, Gen, in, in, in Genesis chapter 39 that, that Joseph was laughing at her, making a mockery of her and really making a mockery of all of the Egyptians. And so, you, you know how you can sort of laugh with someone or you can laugh at someone? You know how, how, how laughter can sometimes be used as something, this is something we're all participating in, or laughter can actually be used to put someone down. And that is what is happening here. Uh, again, it continued to expand the context when you get to the book of Judges. But when Samson has been captured and they've, 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 they've taken out his eyes and they, they bring him out to perform, to entertain the 
Philistines, they laugh at him. It's the same, the same word. And so Ishmael here is mocking. He's, he's being disrespectful in some ways. Now, we know going back to chapter 17 uh, that when Abraham was circumcised, he also circumcised Ishmael. And Ishmael is, in chapter 17, verse 25, it says that Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised. So now this is, and then about a year later, Isaac is born. Now he's being weaned. So Ishmael is 13, 14, 15 years old at this point. So you've got like a teenager and you've got a toddler. And you've got this mother of the toddler looking at what's going on, looking at the way that Ishmael is conducting himself. And Sarah says, this, this can't go on like this. We've got to cast this guy out together with his mother. Now remember, this whole situation with Ishmael and Hagar, this was all Sarah's idea. This sort of uh, uh, adulterous surrogacy uh, this really twisted plan to sort of fast forward God's plan and promises. This was all Sarah's idea, but Sarah is sensing something. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us clarity about what, what is meant by laughter. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, He who was born according to the flesh, that's Hagar, he wasn't born according to faith in the, God's promise, but the flesh, they... They did it their own way. It says he persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. And so this teenager is mistreating this toddler. And I mean, Sarah probably knew the story of Cain and Abel and the older brother and the younger brother. And, and he's seeing this sibling rivalry starting even from, from their youth. And she's, she's, she's saying, this can't go on like this. But it's complicated. Look at verse, verse 11. The, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. Be not displeased because of, sorry, very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. When Abraham looked at Ishmael, he probably saw that, you know, he had the same nose or the same forehead or the same smile. He, he saw a, a family resemblance and he, he, he could see some of him. He was, Ishmael was his own flesh and blood, but when Sarah saw Ishmael, she only saw Hagar's features in his face. It's complicated. It's painful. Abraham loved Ishmael. He was his son. And yet Sarah had this complicated relationship with Ishmael because she's the one who orchestrated events such that he would be born, and yet his birth and even his conception created nothing but difficulty for Sarah. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Wives, right now, just make sure your husband underlined that part. Do as she tells you. All right? Women have sort of... If, if it weren't for this story, uh, right, Adam gets in trouble for listening to his wife in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Abraham gets in trouble in Genesis chapter 16 for listening to his wife. The, the issue is not listening to your wife. The issue is, is are you going to listen to God or listen to your wife? Because Eve and, and 
Sarai were not listening to God, but when your wife is listening to God, you definitely need to listen to your, definitely need to listen to your wife. So God says, do as she tells you. And then he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God is clarifying the specific details. You created a plan B in, in sleeping with Hagar and, and having Ishmael. But I clarified for you that this is plan A. It's going to be Isaac. But Abraham was maybe thinking, well, you know, he hasn't been weaned yet. And I don't know if he's going to survive, so we should keep Ishmael around, you know. We should, it's always healthy to have a, a plan B. And God's saying, no. Through Ishmael, your offspring, the nation that I'm going to, through Isaac, your offspring, that this is through whom I'm going to build this great nation. But it was complicated. This broke Abraham's heart. Because disobedience will always lead to dysfunction in our lives. Uh, it, it, it will always create heartbreaking situations for us. And it's so true in Abraham's life. That he says in verse 13, this is God speaking, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. Again, notice he's never mentioned by name. Of the son of the slave woman, because he is your offspring. God is telling Abraham, listen, you can't look after Ishmael anymore. You cannot look after Ishmael anymore, but God is saying, but I can. And sometimes we get into painful and complicated situations and we think that it's all up to us. The whole Hagar and Ishmael plan, the whole situation, the whole circumstance was Abraham and Sarah trying to do it on their own and not trusting God. And even in the way that Abraham was relating to Ishmael in this moment, he's thinking, I've got to look out for Ishmael. I'm his father. Good, good things don't, don't happen to fatherless children. I need to protect him. I need to look out for him. And God says, listen, Abraham, you can no longer look after Ishmael, but I will. And sometimes God brings us to a point in our family or in our business or in, uh, uh, in a, a church leadership decision where we, we've been trying to manage it. We've been doing our best. And God just says, you just need to let me have that. And you need to entrust that situation or that person to me. And God assures Abraham, you are going to let go of Ishmael. But God says, I will never let go of Ishmael. I have him. And I will take better care of him. I will make him a great nation too. But you can't simultaneously make Isaac into a great nation and Ishmael into a great nation. So you need to let him go. So in verse 14, Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness 
of Beersheba. We're going to learn more about Beersheba and what Beersheba means as the, as the text unfolds. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Again, this is a 13, 15-year-old child. They've run out of water. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Her, her son is dying of starvation and dehydration. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. God heard the voice of the boy. Now, this, this part of the story is very sad. It, it's heartbreaking to, to see this, this single mother with this teenage son, and she, she can't provide for him. She can't feed him. She can't give him water to drink. And it's, it's, it's kind of repeating the, the story of Genesis chapter 16, where where there was an issue about fertility. Initially, it was because Sarai was infertile, but now Sarah is fertile. And, and uh, in chapter 16, it was Hagar who was disrespecting Sarai, and, and now it's Ishmael, Hagar's son, who's laughing or mocking. In the same way, Sarai complained to Abram, and here Sarah complains to Abraham. And Hagar fleed into the wilderness on her own initiative, but now... They're being sent away, and they have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. But we're told in verse 17 that God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up. The boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." It's interesting, I, I, the name Ishmael never gets mentioned, but the name Ishmael means God hears. And it says that God heard the cry of the boy. And then the angel appears to Hagar and says, God has heard. And so there's, there's more parallels to this story. There's a promise of blessing on Ishmael and his life. Ishmael is given the name God hears, and although his name is never mentioned we hear that God has heard Ishmael's voice. Hagar calls God a God of seeing. And then in this story, God opens Hagar's eyes to see what? To see a well, the very place where she had encountered God in chapter 16. And so these stories parallel one another. And the, 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 the fact that both these stories happen at a well, a place of life, a place of provision, a place of refreshment. Not only ties these two stories together, but also ties this story together with the story that's going to come, that's going to come next. Maybe you feel 
like a Hagar or like an Ishmael, you feel rejected. You feel cast off. You feel like the people who should be looking after you have refused to, to, to care for you. Maybe you're someone who, whose heart is broken when you see suffering in the world, whether it's up close or far away in the news. You need to understand that God sees and that God hears. When we think about what we're seeing in the news as it relates to the Middle East, think about what's going on in this story. Here we see God fulfilling His plan and His purpose for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac who will become the people of Israel. He's fulfilling His plan for them in the land. But also notice that he is looking on the suffering of Hagar and Ishmael, and Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. He is looking on their suffering, and he is having compassion on them. God is fulfilling his plan for his people Israel, and God is filled with compassion for people who are suffering. Now, we can debate a whole lot about the details in between, but if we are going to have a heart like God's heart, then we are going to have a heart that trusts God in fulfilling His plan and also trusts God in acting as God's hands and God's feet to look after those who are suffering. Ishmael and Hagar are, are functionally a widow and an orphan. She, she's, she's a divorcee. And, and, and Ishmael is going to grow up with no father figure in his life. What is God's heart for people who find themselves in those kinds of situations? Right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 22, God gives this command. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And then he, he, he lays out the details in Deuteronomy chapter four, he, 24. He's a God of the details. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, a bale of hay, it, it, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Don't go back and get it. You allow those who are needy to, to be able to, glean, or to, to harvest it themselves or to glean it themselves. And then God reveals who he is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 18. He says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. This is the heart of God. This needs to be our heart. And as New Testament believers, in the book of James, we're told religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So God is a God of the details. And in the details, God cares about the people who are collateral damage in the sinful choices of people around them. 
So here we see God being faithful about, his, about the promised son. Faithful to help Abraham and Sarah navigate through a very delicate, difficult, complicated, and excruciating family situation. And God proves to be so faithful. And then we have a promise about, about the land. And God fulfilling the, the details about this land. In Genesis 12, it was just this vague, go to the land that I will show you. And then as the, as the story unfolds, God says, this is going to be the land. And he has Abraham walk around his, his new homeland that God is going to give to him. But he doesn't own it yet. That key detail hasn't yet taken place. And so while Abraham is living in the land but not owning the land, we see him trusting God by living with integrity, generosity, and hope. Verse 22 begins by saying that at that time, so around the same time that this was happening with Hagar and Ishmael, at that same time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, have this conversation with Abraham. Now, Abraham had already interacted with Abimelech, if you recall, in chapter 20. And so Abimelech says to him, God is with you in all that you do. This is evidence. The, the Genesis 12 promise of blessing is, is clear. It's not just clear to Abraham in his own personal experience that others around him are recognizing, Abraham, there is something different about you. And it's all because of Abraham's relationship with God. Verse 23, he says, Now therefore swear to me here by God that you may not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. Now, Abraham had been told by Abimelech in chapter 21, you can dwell wherever it pleases you. Sorry, that's chapter 20, verse 5. You can dwell wherever it pleases you. But now he's seeing the blessing on Abraham's life. And he's seeing his flocks are multiplying at a rapid rate. And, and Abimelech is thinking, I told you you can live anywhere on my land, but I feel like it's not going to be long before you take over my land. So we need to have some sort of non-aggression pact. We need to make some sort of treaty because right now I'm in the position of power, but it won't be long before you're going to be in charge. And so he wants to get out ahead of that. And he also wants to make sure that Abraham doesn't deal falsely. Did you notice that? Don't deal falsely with me. Why would he be concerned about that? Well, because of chapter 20. Remember the whole, she's my sister scandal? Abraham hadn't proven to be trustworthy. He hadn't proven to live with integrity. And so Abimelech is trying to say, okay, here's this sort of uh, sketchy guy who's very prosperous, who's living in my land, we need to, we need to create some, some terms. We need to have some sort of formal agreement. We need to sign a contract. So Abraham says, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll swear at the end of, of verse 24. So they make this treaty with one another, but it becomes clear 
that just a simple treaty is not enough because of what happens next. In verse 25, it says, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham had been told he can live wherever he wants. And so he was living in this particular part of Abimelech's land. He discovers a well. Abimelech wasn't expecting Abraham to discover a well. And they had never discussed in the original agreement that, hey, you can live on the land, but they hadn't discussed, well, what if you find something valuable in the land? And Abraham saying, hey, finders, keepers. But Abimelech is saying, well, thank you very much. You found something on my land and my servants are going to go ahead and seize that. And, and this territory is now ours. Abimelech is claiming he knew nothing about it. I don't know if Abimelech's telling the truth or not. He obviously has a fairly large organization. He, he could blame, you know, middle management. And, and he, he, he says he knows nothing about it. But this is, this is complicated because Abraham doesn't own the land. He doesn't even own the well. And how is he going to navigate this? Is he going to try and lie again? Is he going to go to war with Abimelech? What is he going to do? Well, we see him conduct himself with integrity. We see him conduct himself with, with generosity. In, in verse 27, it says, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant, not just a treaty, not just a promise. They made a covenant with one another. Who provided the animals? Abraham. He's showing generosity here. And they made a covenant. The word there in Hebrew for made a covenant is to cut a covenant. Remember we talked about this in Genesis chapter 15. When you cut a covenant with someone, you took animals, you slaughtered them, you cut them in half. And then you separated them. And then there's a bloody path in between the animals. And both members walk through the bloody path to say, if I don't follow through on my part of this promise, may I become dead and bleeding like these animals. And so Abraham makes this covenant with him. Then Abraham goes above and beyond in verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my, from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Abraham, he's essentially, he's purchasing the well. He said, I don't live in the land. I don't own the land, but I want to own this well. I want this to be mine. This is the only piece of square footage of all the promised land that Abraham can lay claim to. The, the promise is just barely being fulfilled. Now, Abraham is a father He's got a son named Ishmael and a son named Isaac, so that makes him a dad, which makes him very capable of a dad joke. And so I imagine him presenting these seven ewe lambs at the well of Beersheba. And I, I bet Abimelech said, because he was probably a dad too, he said, what are you doing? 
And then Abraham probably said, well, I just want everything to go well for you. But Abraham is operating with, with integrity and he's operating with generosity, which is, which is not, we're seeing him grow. We're, we're seeing him develop character. He's, he's made some very serious mistakes and he's learned from them. I was talking to a bunch of Bible college students yesterday about the topic of failure. And, and, and mistakes, and I don't know why I, I got asked to teach on failure. I guess I'm an expert on failure. I, I think I am, actually. Failure is, and because they were students, I was like, failure is like that professor that is so hard on you, and there's so much reading, and the assignments are so difficult, and they're so strict, and they don't let you miss any classes, and they, 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 they want absolute silence in the lecture hall when they're speaking, and it's really hard. Failure is like one of those really strict teachers, but do you ever notice you actually learn a lot from those really strict teachers? Success is like the easygoing teacher who's wearing flip-flops, and like they don't care if you show up late because they're late half the time, and everyone gets a 90 in the class, and it's a, it's, it's a bird course, and, but... You might enjoy being taught by success, but you really don't learn anything. But I'll tell you, when you fail, you learn a lot. And Abraham had not always conducted himself with integrity or with generosity, but he is now, and he's growing. And when it comes to failure, this is what I said to the Bible college students yesterday, I said, when it comes to failure, It's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of when. (laughs) So the most important thing about us is how we're going to respond when we know that we've failed. That's absolutely key in how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. So then we're given some more details. Verse 31, therefore the place was called Beersheba. If you look at the footnote... Uh, they, they were using a pun. They were using a dad joke. Beer means well. Sheba sounds like the Hebrew word for lamb. This is where he gave seven lambs. Oh, no, no, sorry. It, it, it sounds like the word seven. They gave seven lambs. It also sounds like the word for promise or for oath, Shabua. And so this is, the, this is the well of seven or the well of the oath, beer. Sheba, and, and this, is the, this is the place where, the first place where Abraham was able to look at some territory in the promised land and say, this, this belongs to me. This is mine. And in, in uh, Jewish culture, when they were talking about all of Israel, you see this in the book of Judges, the, the book of uh, 1 Samuel, when they want to describe the whole country, they would say from Dan, which is in the north, to Beersheba. Beersheba was the southernmost border. You know how we would say like from St. John's to, to Victoria, like coast to coast, all of Canada? Beersheba was, was the southernmost border from Dan to Beersheba. So they make this covenant. A covenant that in chapter 26, remember this covenant was supposed to be on into generations. Isaac is going to lie 
to Abimelech, probably Abimelech's son, about his wife. And Abimelech Jr.'s servants are going to quarrel with Isaac about wells again. And so it's not a perfect covenant, it's a man-made covenant. And there's still going to be dysfunction and disagreement here on earth. But I love what Abraham does next in verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. He planted a tree. Trees don't grow quickly. You don't plant a tree unless you have a sense of, we're going we're gonna to be here for a while. I mean, Abraham's 102 years old. He doesn't know how much time he has left, but he thinks, he, he pictures Isaac and, and Isaac's children, Abraham's grandchildren, playing around, maybe a tire swing hanging off this tree someday. He, he has this sense of, we're, we're going we're gonna to live here. There's, there's the sense of hope that although he's been wandering around this territory for two and a half decades, that now he's got this well and he's planting this tree and he has the sense of, of hope that God has a purpose and that God has, has a plan. And, and, and in the same way that there is a greater promised son than Isaac, Jesus Christ, there's also a greater promised land than, than Beersheba. It's still going to be on the same geographic location, but as my friend Ian Hales pointed out, here we have a well and a tree, but the ultimate hope, what Abraham was ultimately hoping in, was not a place just with a well and with a tree, but a place like Eden that has the tree of life. And that has a river of life going through it. The new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. As Hebrews 11 says, Abraham never really got to see the fulfillment. But he had a, he had a bigger hope. And even though that hope was so big and so far off in the future, God paid attention to all of the specific details along the way with Ishmael, with Hagar, with Abimelech, with the promised son and the promised land. So I, I got to ask you today, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, is integrity and generosity and hope something that's characteristic of your life? Particularly hope. Where is all of this heading for you? Are you, just, are you just trying to have as many good experiences as you can or gather as many toys as you possibly can before you die? And are you just assuming that there's nothing after this? No, no, there is something after this. And there is a God who wants to love you in a big plan and a big purpose, but who also wants to love you in the details. And he knows, all the, he knows all the details of your life. He knows the different times where you haven't shown integrity, where you haven't shown generosity. And even though as a holy God, he has every right to judge you for that, he offers you forgiveness through the promised son, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died 
on the cross. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are invited today to have hope because there is a God who wants to love you in the details. He knows that you're a sinner and he sent Jesus to suffer and die to pay for every sin so that you could one day in the life after this life dwell in a place with the tree of life and the river of living water. And you can make that decision today to follow Jesus Christ. And those of us who have already made that decision, we, in light of where we know all of this is heading, we can plant trees in our life while we're sojourning in this world that is not our home. We can, we can plant trees. We can have hope. And we can conduct ourselves with integrity and with generosity in how we interact with people within the church, how we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with our family. We can follow the example of Abraham and the hope that he had. Loved ones, we, we've been going through this series of Genesis because there's so much that's changing in our world, so much is in flux. We've been using the analogy of this enormous wave that seems to have so much momentum and so much power, but the, the wave eventually is going to hit something solid a rock, and, and we are, are going through these stories to remind ourselves about who God is and that he is faithful to his promises, and, and his promises will not shift or change, and they're more detailed and more specific than we could ever imagine, and he is worthy of our trust. Will you, will you renew your trust and your commitment to him who is our rock and our foundation? Let's, let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you are a God who loves us in the details and that you are a God who has a specific plan and a purpose for us. And one day, Lord, there will be a place with the tree of life and the river of living water and it will not just be a place for Jewish people. Arab people will be invited to that place. People from Sri Lanka, people from Canada, people from Peru, people from Ghana, people from all over the world, from every tribe and language and nation and tongue will dwell in this beautiful paradise where there is no sin, where there is no war, where there is no evil and where we will dwell in your presence, where we will experience that blessing of being with you. So God, I pray that you would prepare us for, the, for that day. For those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, God, I pray that they would confess their sin and commit to follow him. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may we follow more closely and intentionally and joyfully as we have this hope in him. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.